From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome to episode 129 of the Killing It Killing It podcast. I'm Carl, joined today by Dave and Ryan. And man, have we got some good juicy stuff. Like the first topic, uh, it might take 40 minutes, but we don't have 40 minutes. Oh, we don't have 40 minutes. We're not allowed to do that, which I, which is the best way to intro. Like, so we're, we're having some fun with questions. Let's warm ourselves up with something fun. If you could change the length of each day to make it perfect for you, how many hours would it be? Oh, that's easy. It would be 23 because I, I tried to take a nap uh, for an hour. So if I could just get rid of that nap, right? I would also get rid of that hour. I don't have anything else to do in that hour. So I might as well just get rid of it. See, I, oh, see, I'd go 25 because I, <laughs> I want one more hour, <laughs> one more hour to screw around with. <laughs> like to take a nap. See, <laughs> absolutely. See, so I actually, I actually did the math on this, right? Seven by 24, seven days, 24 hours in a week. It's 168 hours in a week. But if you divide that by eight, the answer is 21 hours per day. My proposal is let's just reallocate because I want the four day work week, but I'm probably not organized enough to do the four day work week yet. It's a skill I need to learn. But if I had those five days and I still had a three day weekend, I think I would feel better about everything. That's just too much work. I just I know you've made it that. complicated. I just want an extra hour to screw around in each day. Like <laughs> and one extra hour to sit in the pool and watch the sunset. Cool. That's fair. I, I'll, I'll buy I'll buy that. Day. I could buy that. Fair. fair enough. Well, I think, you know, PC Matic. Think again. PCmatic is working with MSPs to deliver true zero-trust, default-deny, endpoint security, allowing only trusted applications and blocking all the rest. A lightweight, simple-to-deploy, and easy-to-manage approach to application allow listing. Layering a default-deny approach provides MSPs of all sizes the ability to again focus on prevention, and PCmatic delivers this without impacting performance or efficiency. Find out more by visiting PCmatic.com slash MSP and be sure to ask about PCmatic's exclusive lead sharing program for MSPs backed by a primetime national TV campaign. So I'll dive in on the first one. I covered this on the Business of Tech right after the long weekend. Uh, CISA has released some guidance specifically designed for MSPs customers. So this is designed, this is guidance from the US federal government on how customers should consider risk when dealing with their managed services provider. I love this one. It includes such wonderful items like dividing where the tasks and responsibilities should be, but it even gets down to details of what should be provided in the advance of a contract, including things like a software bill of materials, specific service level agreements, detailed guidance for incident management, financial health, and details on how the customer will monitor the MSP's activities. Guys, what do you think about CISA waiting in here? Well, I've been uh, with the new National Society for IT Service Providers. I've been 
given a little bit of heat about the fact that there's not actually any legislation on the horizon. So what the hell are you doing? Well, I would recommend that you take a look at this. It's only nine pages and it is dense and juicy and good. I have to say, one of the things that really stood out to me was the supply chain risk assessment, which we have actually talked about several times in the last year on this show, um, but it's nice to know that somebody else is paying attention as well. I think all of this is good for our industry. It may be bad for a handful of IT service providers, but for the industry, I think it's great. Well, I think it is now and necessary, right? This is not the, the philosophical future of our industry. This is a very practical step forward that says, if you want to be in this business, these are the expectations that you must be able to stand up to. Now, I understand, Carl, in the heat that you've been getting in the, in the conversation around professionalizing the industry, it would, when I hear an objection to that, Either I hear hacks, quite frankly, who uh, you can't make me be good at my job. Yes, we can, because your performance affects all of us. I think that that's, that's one little audience. But the other audience is, I don't want the government telling me how I must run this through regulation and legislation. Cool. How about the free hand of the market, an educated market, an informed market, a customer who says, I'm not just here asking for your best effort. I'm here to say, these are the things I absolutely require you to do. Can you do them? It has exactly the same functional effect, right? Because as you go through this, and I agree with you guys, um, there's a whole lot of hell yeah responses when you go through the points that they're making. Like, yes, that's exactly what an MSP needs to be able to do. But it's not big, bad government telling you, me you must through regulation. It's that good, friendly customer who has money to pay in a contract who says, I'd love to hire you. If you're actually good enough to be a I professional. Say, wow. That's I think if you're just getting started in this business, implementing this document could set you up for the next five years without any problem. And between this and the NIST CMMC, uh, I think we have a lot of guidance about what good IT uh, consulting looks like. Uh, you know, this is this is what an engagement should look like. Um, and the people who just want to be trunk slammers and, uh, you know, sneak out the back door, uh, I think their days are numbered. Oh, I, I'm totally with you. But what, what's so interesting is that there's so many things that this crystallizes for me. Like, we always had this, like, debate of, like, well, what do we call ourselves? Are we IT providers? Are we managed? No, the U.S. government has just weighed in and called us all managed services providers. Done. Like, they just they just <laughs> ended the debate by issuing guidance on this is the group that service IT for a small business. They are called managed services providers. Don't, like, well, sorted. And, and <laughs> it's, what, I, what I would say is we shouldn't be surprised that the federal government is the one coming out with the – template for standards that a customer can apply in this process. If you've ever sold anything to the federal government, you know the process of the RFI and the RFQ and the RFP. Um, and and the, old, the old truth of this is, if you didn't write the RFP, you're not winning the RFP because it includes standards and requirements that are strangely aligned to the competitive advantage of one particular provider in the industry. The federal government is phenomenally advanced 
at writing really detailed specifications that they need customers. They need service. I am the customer as the federal government. I need you as the service provider to meet my expectations. All they're doing is saying, take that wisdom, make it bite-sized for the right complexity of the end user organization and impose those requirements back on the, on the service provider market. I think that's brilliant. That is, again, it's the free hand of the market because the customer is the one who's stepping up and saying, okay, I'm not okay waiting for you guys to get your act together. I'm saying, you want to work with me? This is what it means. Yeah, Carl, you've been getting heat for you know your, your statements on that. I get heat for my statements of like, you know, there are certain pieces of technology, <laughs> RMM, that I don't want in my <laughs> own network right now because I think they're garbage. Like I think they are attack vectors. And and what what I and here's where I'm coming from. Like, if you look at who my business is, I am much more like a customer than anything, right? I am a media company that produces, and I produce podcasts, right? Like you're listening to one right now, right? So uh, I'm a media company that produces a product that's intellectually uh, intellectual property. We're super focused on making sure that is available. I use technology to do it, and I consume technology services, not deliver them. I, I consume them. And so for me, it's like, well, what are all the risks that could possibly happen to have my information stolen? I'm only going to work with providers that can hit a certain standard. Now, I happen to be a super informed customer, right? Because right. I come from this space. Uh, but I'm looking at these kinds of guidance and saying, well, yeah, these are the questions I'm asking. I, I, what are you bringing in? What risks are you bringing in? What risks are you assuming? What are, what are my guarantees? Like, what is the software bill of, of materials that I can guarantee to know what's happening? Like, what are the standards that are going in there? I may be leading in terms of like the way customers are going, but that doesn't mean everyone's not going to look like that. Side note, I love RMM, but the, uh, the, <laughs> the good news here is that this is not just uh, a handful of things where the government says, do this, do this, do this. These are true actual guidelines that if, if you look at it from one lens, these are best practices that the best people in the industry have already got in place. And yes. this is just a matter of codifying them. Many people are still, after all these years, not good at documenting what they do, what they did, and what they're going to do next. Um, so with luck, we'll continue to improve on that front. But uh, we're we're heading in the right direction. Well, if you're worried about your if you're worried about your documentation, note that one of those is that you will provide a baseline of operations for the customer's network. Well, the companies that make documentation tools are probably they just had a great weekend like they are they were drunk all weekend because they <laughs> absolutely right. true and, and and again see carl i think you made two really killer points that i want to make sure everybody walks away with here in the tactical part of it right number one if you're already a professional well-run well-established organization you're not going to be surprised by or perplexed by anything in these expectations. There are good leading providers in our industry that are already doing it. All y'all that are not doing these things, step up, right? Like that's what we're saying here. The second thing that, that you mentioned, Carl, that I want to make sure everybody hears, you are an official member of the IT supply chain. You are no longer just an aftermarket service provider who can do whatever they want. You are part of the supply chain. Therefore, you are accountable for controlling and protecting that supply chain and the customer relationship. That's a real step forward in the industry. 
Excellent. Deep topic. And obviously, we'll come back to that one again and again, because uh, we, we love when people get really specific on these things. Uh, second topic that we want to dive into here. Uh, you guys are familiar with some past topics that we've discussed around the kerfuffle between Apple and Google and their app stores and the developers that sell through those app stores and how people get paid and how much Apple charges, et cetera, et cetera, right? We're most familiar with the idea of Epic and, and all of the, the corporate struggles that are going on between Apple and Epic and, and removing their games from the platform because they refuse to abide by the you may only charge through the Apple platform, well, guess what? That got noisy enough, and recently we've seen Apple make a couple of moves, a few overtures, like, hey, maybe we won't be quite so draconian in our approach to this thing, and now we know why, because the article that we're going to link to here for our second topic says, by the way, the government of South Korea has now passed actual parliamentary legislation that forbids Apple and Google from requiring exclusivity in the billing. In other words, if I'm a developer and I sell through the Apple uh, platform, I may bill my customers directly using alternative platforms and not have to pay Apple's 30% toll for the road. This is a big topic. What do you guys think about, A, the whole evolution of this Apple saga, and B, the South Korean government oh. stepping in here? So it's juicy. And so so for me, the first question that jumped to mind, and you can tell how evil my brain is turning on these <laughs> things, was the, like, well, the penalties are, like, 3% of revenue within the country. I wonder if they're just going to pay it. I wonder if they will go, this is not worth us... Uh, you know, trying to make changes to because theoretically it is a small enough of our total addressable market worldwide. And so we may just go, eh, we'll just start writing checks to the well, South Korean government in, and make this problem go away. I am intensely curious to see if in, that happens. In support of that, um, one way to look at this is we have taken more than our share for so long that if we have to take a little less, it's still more than our share. So <laughs> right. we, we can afford it. But, you know, I mean, I pay 2.9% if you pay me with a visa, right? So uh, it's not the worst thing in the world. And so do I, by the way. And I always smile and go, and happily, right? Because right. I get my money fast. Right, like, exactly. I, I get my money it. today and there's no collections. But the, uh, the other thing is that if you look at the U.S. Congress, which didn't do this, right? We waited for Korea. But uh, the U.S. Congress is looking to say, well, you know, when it comes to monopolies, do we have a stronger case or a weaker case because of this? Right. If you if you think these guys are monopolies, which, you know, they appear to be. See, and that's the thing, right? I've I've, I've looked at it from both sides. I, I see it from Apple's point of view, because put yourself as the marketplace i.e. the channel to market, if Apple is the route to market for those developers and they provide marketing and they provide platform and they provide operations, that's value add and it justifies a markup or a margin for that channel partner. 30 points, I mean, I know enterprise software resellers who will not sell you a seat license of an application for anything less than 45 points right? Because that's the expectation. It's complicated. It's, it, it has a lot of heft to it. And 45 points is the toll that you pay because that's 
what but there's is a difference. value justified. When I buy, points isn't that bad. When I buy software at that level, the software company is providing the quality control. When I buy something through the mm -hmm. Apple Store or the Google Play Store, uh, Google and Apple are providing the quality control. And basically, right? Correct. So, I mean, they, they... See, and that's the thing, right? Are the, is 30 points justifiable? Well, I think you're right, Dave. If 30 points isn't justifiable, would they be fine at 27? I mean, the arithmetic still works it's out. It's still pretty awesome. In their favor. <laughs> it, it's like, I, I can now make 30 points in the US and I make 27% only on in-country revenue for the companies that have the money to sue me because by the way, they're not just gonna send you a check. Apple's gonna require you to sue them under this law. So they're not, they're, they're probably gonna walk away with like 28 and a half points on all revenue in South Korea. Are they okay with that? Probably. Well, <laughs> right, probably. But, but is this just the first step and then it goes to the next country is France and they want 5% and the next country is 8% and right? Yep, I think it has to be and to Dave's point, uh, 3% is not going to change behavior. If your intent with the law is to deplatform the monopoly and, and require it to open up to other billing uh, avenues for the software providers, then you're going to have to make it 30. Quite frankly, it has to be has to be a real punch in the gut in order for people to change their behaviors. And if you charge 30 points and require... I had this conversation earlier with a client. I was like, you know, they were trying to say, we want loyalty from our channel partners. And so what we'll do is we'll require them to sign an exclusive contract and they're not allowed to work with anybody. And I was like, wow, you know, requiring loyalty is really not the way the humans like to be treated. That sounds, I don't know, totalitarian or communistic. I don't think requiring people to buy through your platform. Guess what, Apple? If your billing mechanism is so damn good and so damn valuable, people would be happy to pay whatever you charge for it. If you have to force them to buy it, um, yeah. well, you know, you one will of the, like it. <laughs> <laughs> one of the other big techs that uh, Congress has got their eye on is is Amazon, and you know, there's different ways that you can publish on Amazon Kindle. One of the options that gives you the most money gives them all the rights. Uh, and then if you want if you want to own more of your own in intellectual property, well, then you make less money. But you you get to check the box which percentage you want. So, uh, you know, I think people make those choices. And for whatever reason, neither of them is a great choice, but you get to make the choice. And as a human being, it feels good. Right? I, I'm totally reminded of that T-shirt. The beatings will continue until morale improves. Exactly. Like this is... <laughs> Like it's just totally that methodology here. So, so if you guys were app developers, would you care about any of this, or would you just say, "Look, I, you know, it is what it is, and I don't have any choice." I think it. I think it literally depends on your scale and maturity. If I'm a startup software provider and I can get access to the Apple Store, and that gives me access to all of the customers. I would happily pay you that 30 points up front in order to get established in a humongous marketplace. Once I get to the size of Epic and I've got the cash money to build my own platform and get my own community, at that point, I would start to push back. If you think about it, in the pyramid of their developers, 98% of them are under 
500,000 in total revenue, I think is the most recent statistic that I saw about developers there. Are they okay with it? Hell yeah. Well, Revenue's revenue. And remember, they they've just, already they made, an accept, they've made an exception for them. Anybody less than a million is only 15%. Mm -hmm. So, like, clearly we already and, – and they knew that because of exactly the stat you just gave, Ryan, where it's like they could easily give that away, look magnanimous, and position mm -hmm. well because of this. This is – I mean, look, don't get me wrong. I think the market gets to determine how this is done, but what the market is is, is saying is – we have entered into a monopolistic approach, and so there is pushback, and the and the market doesn't have another way to respond. Thus, mm -hmm. it's being at, you know, the the market is some of the market is screaming in the court system, fix this. That's where we're at. By the way, guys, you know from a, from an operational point of view, as we all deal with things as a subscription and things as a recurring revenue platform, the one thing that I will say to any of these platforms, Apple, Google, any of them. Regular monthly billing based on subscription and consumption ain't easy. Most companies think subscriptions are brilliant. Most companies suck at accurate <laughs> and timely billing. So the fact that these guys are good at it, cool, congratulations. I wonder how quickly other competitors will be able to step up because the problem they're solving is not well, easy. Well, I mean, last note on this before we move on. It just leaves a huge opening for somebody to write a system for tracking payments through all of these various uh, uh, exploding gateways um, and making sure that everybody gets their fair share. So that's the next app, and it'll be built Trade, on trademark, blockchain. Trademark Carl Polichek. <laughs> trademark Carl Polichek. So our final topic to the day uh, is a, a little bit different than what we've been talking about before, but it's about Tesla and some other companies, but the article we're going to point to is Tesla designing their own chips for training their own self-driving cars. So part of the issue is that Tesla doesn't use LiDAR, which is a 3D imaging uh, technology. They have their own system. And so rather than buying somebody else's chips and, and dealing with all of the supply chain issues, they're building their own chips. Now, they, they're going to have some issues down the road, obviously, because this sounds easy if you have billions of dollars and nothing to do with your money. Um, but my guess is they're going to have to learn a lot of lessons before they uh, can completely dismiss the big chip makers. Um, but they're doing it, and it's because they need to train their own neural network to keep track of all the data that their cars collect. What do you guys think? You're going to buy into this uh, new chip maker? So the answer, it, it seems to me that there's been such a trend toward a lot of these companies being their own chip developers. Uh, this screams to me that there's space for uh, innovation and disruption in that there, there has for a long time been groups that, are, that develop chips. And if, they, if this is such a need, some of it is clearly because that portion of the market is not performing. Intel, by the way, is notorious, right, for this. Like, they've been known for being behind, not quite where they're supposed to be, not pushing far enough ahead. Like, you know, did they get fat and happy? Looks like it. Uh, and, you know, and, and are losing uh, clout and certainly market share from this. I, you know, w w this this feels like one of those pendulum things, right, where 
people will start pulling it in for a while. They will start developing it in, and then somebody will come along and start being disruptive and they will license the technology and it may swing again back towards, and, and we've seen these swings back and forth in the industry for a while. I think we're in, we're in the midst of, I don't want to say we're entering because it's already there, where, where these companies are developing themselves for speed and for design motif, that tells me there's going to be a disruption somewhere along the line with somebody being able to do better. So you're, you're thinking somebody will go to these various companies and say, I know you're making your own chips. We've got a better process. Let's combine yep. your efforts with other people's efforts and blah, 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 yep. blah. It'll swing, back, it'll swing back around, right? And it won't be Intel <laughs> yeah, and it won't be AMD. Absolutely. The integration disintegration pendulum is a very real thing in our industry. I think there's two things at work here. One of them, uh, not all that surprising, it is supply chain optimization by vertical integration. And what I mean by that is you look at their expenditures on their cost of goods for Tesla and a very large chunk of expense goes to NVIDIA and others who sell them these chips for AI training. And by the way, if you had invested in NVIDIA five or six years ago, you would be a very happy individual because clearly Tesla et al. pay a ton of money for that. Well, of course, an expense management technique is going to look at that and go, why am I outsourcing that to a third party? Why don't I in-house that and I can take care of that myself, radically cut the overhead and I can then personalize and customize it? That's the first thing I think Tesla is doing. The second thing is a little bit more weird and interesting. The fact that what they're saying is we collect so much data that we want to own and analyze all of that in a pod, not car by car, but the auto, the autonomous driving car world. We want to own and analyze and control all of that in a bubble. Okay, that's really fascinating because not only does that seem like a humongous strategic move that is probably beyond any single company to be able to pull off, but oh my God, can you imagine if they did that? Like if they owned the world and now in order to have an autonomous car on the road, you must now subscribe to the Tesla analytics. And you ha and now Tesla is the Intel inside of every autonomous car because they've got that advanced level of learning and analysis. If they were able to pull that off, holy cow, yeah. that would be a massive strategic move. I just think that they're probably not disciplined enough to pull that kind of scale off. I was going to say, I wouldn't have bet a nickel on that strategy just because Waymo is <laughs> way more successful than Tesla. <laughs> so. Exactly. But, but also, exactly. by the way, none of them are actually successful. Like, let's just sort of, let, I mean, let me just throw that out there. Like, we've been talking about this forever. Like, I'm not. You've got the biggest share of 1% of the market. So. Right, exactly. Like, so far, this ain't working. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't observe that, I, I don't know, Tesla investigations, <laughs> like, you know, looking, keeps running into medical vehicles. Like, yeah, something's going on there. <laughs> See, I will, I will say some of this is business development strategy for Elon. Some of it appears to be distraction, maybe a little. Um, at the event where he announced, we're going to do our own chips, he also said, we're going to do a lot of other things in addition to space and cars and electrical storage. By the way, we're going to do robots. Did you catch the demonstration 
of him announcing the robot strategy. Yeah, it was a dude in a suit. It was a dude (laughs) in a unitard where you couldn't see his head, and he moved around rather rhythmically when you think about that in the context of a robot. And, And 200 different tech journalists were obligated to write an article that Elon is going to build robots because he had a guy in a unitard on stage. I was like, okay, that's probably not his strategy, but that was a really low cost way to take the eyes of the market off of the fact that he's not succeeded in autonomous driving, that he's not making money in in his core businesses at a regular clip. Uh, some of this strategy is theater and some of it is really entertaining theater. This one, I think it kind of falls into, you know what? I'm sick and tired of writing POs to the chip companies, and I want to slash that line item on my expense report. I think report. it's more than that, though, because I think we are, you know, one last point on this issue. We're at a point in history where <clears throat> Intel is making basically the same stuff they've made for the last 10 years, because Once PCs got to be above three gigahertz and, uh, you know, you you get an i7 or an i9, who cares? It's fast enough to do everything it needs to do. It's not fast enough to control eight cameras and the artificial intelligence it takes to not run over small children, right? So, So on one hand, you have a lot of gliding technologies, right? If you're looking at Raspberry Pi, great technology. There are no new chips in there. There's nothing cutting edge. There's nothing amazing and spectacular, but it's a massive workhorse of a of technology. Now you come to, the, to something where you say, look, what we've been doing, what you chip manufacturers have been doing has not grown fast enough. We absolutely have to have something better or we're stuck where we are. And so whether it's Elon or anybody else, somebody has to develop these chips. And uh, it it appears not to be the big chip makers. (laughs) Well, and the one thing that I will say is the last time, this is not the first time this happened to Intel. There once was a time where Intel controlled the world of the market that they were in, DRAM, et cetera. And then they became yesterday's news and new competitors came in and threatened. And Intel made a strategic decision and a wholesale shift to completely reorient and become the chip and the silicon company. And I would argue for 30 years, they owned us all with that strategy. They were very, very good at it. Now they're at a point where, okay, so now there's a new disruptive threat. There's a new place where you might have a competitor who's going to outdistance you. Can Intel pivot again? Um, I wouldn't count them out. They they have a track record of making some massive changes to their portfolio and their sales. Yeah, as I said, like I'm, my my statement, the takeaway here is is like, ooh, I like a market ripe for disruption. <laughs> it's you know, I like <laughs> I like those, and so that's my takeaway here is is the this just tells me that space, yeah, ripe for ripe for disruption. Well, and it may be, you know, Intel, like everybody else, has tried to figure out ways to sell services, sell services, sell services. Maybe they need to get back to their knitting. (laughs) Always wise. (laughs) Amen. Yes. And and with those wise words, we come to the end of yet another episode. So that will do it for episode 129 of the Killing It Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It Podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. 
Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.